0: Hi, I'm Bernard Leung, and you may know me as the executive who applies satellite and drone imaging on critical infrastructure inspections, and in my spare time, thinking about what developers in Asia can benefit from Google I.O. and Apple WWDC 2018. You are listening to Analyze Asia, the weekly podcast dedicated to business technology and media in Asia. And today, I have an old friend, Ben Beharin from Creative Strategies in Silicon Valley. Welcome back, and it's great to have you back.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me back, Bernard.
0: So since our last conversation, I think that was a year ago, we were also talking about Google I/O 2017 and Apple WWDC 2017. So what have you been up to since we last spoke? Yeah,
1: still been busy. Obviously, uh, Silicon Valley is a uh, is a bustling time. There's lots of business going on, and I think when we're in a period of really looking more to the future, because you know things like mobile devices and you know, obviously PCs and, and other types of devices have, have mostly become fairly settled and mature. You know, people are starting to look a little bit farther onto the horizon about what's coming and what's next. And so, you know, it, that business is great for us. I mean, all, all periods of industry are great for us. But obviously when, when companies have more questions than they have answers, that, that's really when kind of work that we do at Creative Strategies, it, it re- really starts to take off and, and we see some really exciting stuff. So we're, we're working on lots of Really interesting products, lots of stuff that, uh, that I can't talk about, but I think it's exciting times to be kind of working on uh, thinking about what's coming uh, in the future.
0: So I wanted to ask you, because you've just written an article on Intel's moment of truth in tech I guess it's all because of Intel's recent turmoil with their CEO resigned where do you think things are going for them
1: yeah you know it's it's really interesting you know a, a couple of years ago in fact in that in that article i linked to something that i wrote where i called my theory basically called intel and the last foundry standing and basically you know over the past 10 years or so you know intel's always been, I guess my read on it is that they've been betting their company on their process technology. So that's the unique types of architecture and manufacturing. More importantly, the the unique manufacturing designs that Intel brings around x86. And for for a long time, I mean, really ever since Intel started, they've they've really always had what most experts would consider a process technology technology leadership position. And so if you sort of say, you know, look the the history of the industry has been obviously, you know, following a path of, of Moore's law to some degree, making chips smaller, more powerful, more power efficient and moving to next generation process nodes that that if Intel could be the only one, right? Because it's really hard to keep making these things smaller. I mean, you just you're up against limits of quantum physics. And so if Intel's the only company who can manufacture at latest generation nodes, so, you know, everybody's talking about being at 10 now and then you've got seven and you got five and you got three. So I think their they, their thesis was, well, it's gonna be so hard for other people to get to, you know, maybe not necessarily 10 or 7, but for sure five and three nanometer process technology that if Intel's the last one standing, then all the other manufacturing fabs would essentially have to use their process and thus Intel would have a a really interesting business because like I said, they're they're kind of the last foundry standing. The problem though, with that theory and that betting of of the company on is that they have to maintain a process, you know, technology leadership position. And over the past couple of years, I think it's become increasingly clear that that they have not. Part of that is architectural decisions that they've made around their process that has obviously led them to some pretty significant delays in 10, nanometer. You know, I, I just, I really find it fascinating, right? That that for the first time in AMD's history, they've beat Intel to a process as they're right now sampling on seven nanometer TSMC process technology and, and, and Intel's still you know, nowhere in sight to ship 10 nanometer. So really interesting things about that dynamic, but you know, it's hard. You can look at it and say, how much of this is management? How much of this is technology? How much of this is Intel stubbornness, which there is a lot of. So, you know, I, I think that they've no doubt needed new management. I mean, I've thought about the, thought about this for a long time. This stuff recently with with Brian Krasanich is not is not, I think, you know, all of a sudden out of the blue, unrelated to, I think, even their board needing new management. But but they've they've really needed you know, somebody at the helm that can drive vision and really try to get Intel back on path from a technology leadership position. But, you know, I think what it's really come down to, Intel is becoming more of a pure disruption play. You know, if we just kind of look out of disruption theory and all of the things that lead to disruption, I think that they are basically suffering from a true element of disruption in the market. And and I honestly, it's it's very, very hard to see how they, how they turn around from
0: this. I have two questions to follow up on that. The first one is who is going to be the next CEO of Intel because I saw your tweet and I couldn't make anything out of it. And then the second thing is that they have also recently acquired Mobileye, which is an Israeli company that produces chips for the self-driving car space so where do you see these things going for them then
1: yeah who's going to be the next ceo is a, a real tricky question you know there's speculation that and the tweet that i said is that it'd be great to have pat gelsinger back who was the cto of intel and was not chosen as the succession line when Paul dolini was and so because of that pat took the uh, ceo job of vmware and i think you know there was a, a big kind of schism inside Intel when Craig Barrett uh, retired and picked Paul instead of Pat Gelsinger. A lot of people like Pat, and I don't think it was a unanimously loved decision within Intel. So the question has been, you know, could he come back? Would he be willing to come back? You know, interestingly, a couple of reporters had, had tweeted the same thing, and, and Pat pretty much responded on Twitter saying, you know, no, no interest. The, the future is software, and that's where VMware is, and so that's kind of where, where I want to stay. But you know, obviously, any anything can happen. You know, they could make an acquisition. I think there's there's been some speculation that they should bring somebody in from the outside. Again, very very short list of people for who that's possible. Murphy runs manufacturing. He used to work at, at Qualcomm. People have speculated that uh, that Murphy becomes the uh, the new CEO. You know, th- this is like I said. The, the reason I wrote that article was basically to say <clears throat> if you look at the past two things I've I've written, which is one, you know, Intel's last foundry standing, and and they had no plan B, which was kind of the end summary of my piece they either needed to win on process or or that was pretty much pretty much it you know and then the second piece i wrote which is how disruptions targeting intel it was really just that you know this is their moment of truth you know new management can do a lot for a company this is the point in time where i think this is their this is their last shot to to turn this around and and making the right decision on their ceo i think is absolutely crucial to your point about question about uh, self driving cars i mean obviously intel from a cpu standpoint realizes that the CPU is only one part of the broader computing ecosystem, right? It's just one chip of now many different chips that are that are being integrated into uh, everything from obviously not just, you know, self driving cars, but internet of things, computer vision, even PCs and smartphones, for example. Right? It's not just one chip. There's there's lots. Intel's ideally, in an ideal position, would would own as many pieces of those chips that are found in every computing product out there. This is where their acquisitions come in so that they can just essentially, you know, have more of the the bill of materials cost for somebody who's making a self-driving car, a PC an IoT device, you know, you name it servers, etc. That's really I think the the play of kind of how they're looking at kind of these complementary ecosystems of of chips which Mobileye was and there's there's others as well right there was Nirvana on the on the machine learning AI side for servers. All of that stuff is just for them to to realize that they they can't just be one CPU, you know, one one chip, maybe some networking, right? Other pieces they've got. They've got to have more of the stack. And that's that's their hope, right? And that they can tie that stack to Intel CPUs. And, and they're obviously working on a GPU now, which is probably not going to work the way that they thought, but, but they're going to try. So like I said, lots of stuff going in that company, you know, but at the end of the day, Intel has got to do things that fill their manufacturing capacity. That's not possible with just CPUs. So they, they need to be, uh, they need to have other pieces of silicon that lets them uh, fill those fabs. So this, that's kind of their attempt for things like Mobileye, other acquisitions, I think that they will make is again, to kind of bring it all back to, uh, to Intel manufacturing.
0: So I'm going to switch gears and get back to the main topic of the day, which is about Google IO and Apple WWDC 2018. I think the best way to start off this conversation is, I think you attended both the, of these events. So what are the key major announcements? Maybe we start off with Google I.O. 2018 and then followed by WWDC. Sure.
1: Yeah, and if, if everyone remembers, I'll, I'll sort of briefly summarize, you know, from even the last time we talked about these themes, a, a continual significant theme was, was really around just machine learning, right? I, I think when you think about, when I think about machine learning, you know, I, I think that machine learning at its core is a technological architecture, which again can vary by implementation, but as a technological architecture, that's really going to touch every single computing product. And so just to see how machine learning is coming to smartphones, is coming to PCs, is coming to you know cloud devices, is, is being built in on IoT devices, is, is really, I think, is the testament of how powerful this subtrend is going to be where machine learning really invades every single type of technology product at not just a software level, but at a, at a hardware level as well. And that was, again, I think a continuation of that theme this year at, at Google, I own Apple. It, it's only that the application of it, was a little bit different, which I thought was actually really interesting. In fact, I'd lump Microsoft's Build some uh, technology conference into this point I'm going to make as well, which is when you look at all of the real efforts that they made in software, it was really about just helping the user be more efficient, be more productive, get things done faster. This was a significant theme of all three of those developer events from Microsoft, Apple, and Google. And I think that's an important observation, right? If you just look at the reality of the past you know call it decade has been very very fast moving brand new features with everything from notebooks to you know desktops and obviously smartphones and tablets to a degree. And we didn't really see a lot of things this year with the new OS updates that were like brand new whiz bang features. It was a lot of building and making these features that they've had over the past, you know, five or six years, making them better and more efficient. And so kind of my takeaway from that was that you know we're sort of past this phase. At least maybe it's just that the market is so mature that we're sort of past the whole you know, I need I, company A, I'm Apple or I'm Google or, or Microsoft. I need this brand new whiz-bang feature to get consumers' attention. Consumers have all of these features that they know and love. And I think now it's about just helping them get stuff done faster. And, and that's just, again, goes back to kind of this underlying philosophy that that both Google and Apple and even Microsoft, you know, we're we're pointing out that, you know, the ideal goal is to not have you spend, you know, an extra 20 minutes on a task that, that machine learning can help you get done in five minutes or less. And so you could look at that and say, well, that's either one, help me use these devices less, less, or help me get more out of the devices in the brief times that I'm using them, whether that's, you know, writing a document, working on a PowerPoint, Excel, analyzing data, being on Twitter, etc. Right? Editing photos, whatever it is, the bottom line is help people get stuff done faster, because then they can either get more done, or they can get rid- done with that task, stop using the device and go be out and out in the world. And-, and that second point that I'm making about having less time than having more time to do other things, I think then parallels into this really interesting development where everybody is kind of giving you tools to manage what would be, you know, quote unquote, consider device addiction, but basically help you manage the time that you spend on these devices so that you can be aware if you're being too sucked in or or not present in a moment and really put the device down and go be present in the world. And so Apple and Google are both giving, you know, customers tools to to manage the time that they have on devices to help them limit things that they might do on social media. Because I think everybody acknowledges that it's not great, you know, to sit in a, you know, in front of a screen and stare at a screen either, either on your PC or your Mac or tablet or whatever for too long in the day, right? It's a great big world. People are interesting, go out in the world, hang out with people, etc. And so that was kind of, I think these, those two things come together, which is let's help you get done. Let's help you do the things you want to do faster, more efficient, be more productive so that you have the time to go out and do other th- things and let's make sure that we don't let the devices interrupt you or or bring you back or suck you back in to the kind of things that'll take your attention from kind of the other things that you might want to do in the world. And I think those two things kind of lumped together made for a really interesting set of conferences. I think it's things that consumers are going to love and appreciate, but I also think those things need to be built on. There's more that both Apple and Google can do and even Microsoft to a degree to help us be more efficient, be more productive, get things done faster. And then more importantly, manage the devices, you know, manage our
0: time on these devices so that we can, you know, go out to the world and and do other things. Do you see them what they are actually trying to focus on reducing your time on the device as part of because of the tech backlash that's ongoing in the US at the moment?
1: No, I, I don't think so. You know, I honestly, I think that, you know, this both what Google and Apple did, I, I don't think is is something that they just thought of in the last year. I think these have been things they've been working on for a long time. I mean, social sciences and, you know, even psychology behavioral practices have been talking about this for a long time. You know, there's been worry about how much time our kids spend on these devices, really just how addictive screen media is. I mean, and this has been true since the advent of, of television, right? Perhaps even radio, right? It's just, these types of more visceral and, and engaging experiences are, are addictive. You know, we, we humans, we, we like those things. We get hits of dopamine, right? We, the, they gain our interest. And so I, I think that that's been a long time coming. I think what's happened is just again, right? The pace of innovation. I mean, honestly, if you look, Seth, if you look at the pace of innovation, I mean, we could just look at it the ten, over 10 years, but, but even longer, 20, 30 years. I mean, it's been really remarkable how fast technology has come and the point that it's gotten to. And there really hasn't been much of a pause, or much of an inflection point to say, all right, we've, we've created these incredible, powerful computing devices with access to real-time media, access to news and live events in real time. We can share and broadcast ourselves, whatever we're doing in real time. I don't think that there's been kind of a pause not just on the industry behalf, but on a human behalf of people to say, what has that done to me? Like the pace of innovation web happened so fast, it, it crept up on me, but is that really good? And so I just think, I think we as a society, not just our culture, but other cultures as well, I think are starting to ask some of these deeper questions about, the role that technology plays in our lives. And again, the, you, the, it's completely up to the end user, which I think is good, right? Every human in this case can make a decision at what's best for them. But I think some social practices are now emerging, which I think are, are interesting and productive. And I think that's just kind of the result of it's, it's been so fast. Now might be a time for us to take a number of years to pause, kind of work out how best these things, phones, TV, you know, everything fit into our life because they do demand a lot of attention and just making some new decisions, you know, behaviorally from a discipline standpoint about how we use them and when. And so I just think we're kind of at that perhaps a collective pause uh, the tools are great to help us manage it, but but there still needs to be a broader conversation about what's best practices for, uh, you know, what we loosely call, right, our, our technology addiction. And it's interesting, I, I don't know if you caught this, but, you know, who the the World Health Organization last week deemed video games addiction as a, you know, health disorder. And so you kind of have this, like, like this is just an example of all this stuff that's crept up on us and we haven't really wrestled with the implications of what's happening psychologically or what's happening mentally, even physically to a lot of people who do get sucked into these things and use them for probably you know, too much time. So we're at that, I just, we're at that point where this is now a healthy conversation.
0: I think this is a good point that you mentioned about how these social practices have actually caught up with us. Because if you are in Asia most of the time and you're in restaurants, you see a lot of kids are just addicted to the iPads or iPhones or even, you know, Android tablets, like as if it's like a Digital pacifier. And my wife and I took a lot of effort to just basically got our daughter not even touching a device for, for that.
1: Yeah. And I think, you know, j- just a couple on that point too. I mean, I think it's other cultures, I think, will, will struggle with this too. Because if you think about it, right, the US has had much longer exposure holistically to devices than China, right? If you look at China, like oh, you could, oh, the first time that, that most people in China and, and all parts of Asia have ever had a computer is with a smartphone. So really, only in the last, five to seven years has this pace of innovation caught up with China to the point where everybody now has a technology device. Whereas in the US, we've had it you know for for longer than that. So it's a global conversation. And it's one that some, like I said, some cultures, they might struggle with it more because it's even more new to them than it is to Western to, to consumers. But that's why I just say it's globally, it's a good
0: conversation to have. So I want to pull the conversation back and also think a little bit about the different platforms that exist, because I think one shift that I'm seeing in both Google I.O. and Apple WBVC or even Microsoft is also going into the AR, VR space, depending on who does what, there's also the wearable space. Where do you see that landscape going? Is it still the smartphone is augmenting across these new platforms
1: yeah I mean the smartphone is going to be around for a long time still. I think the smartphone's still going to sit at the center of, you know, the vast majority of computing experiences that uh, that we have. It's interesting to think about, you know, where augmented reality goes. I mean, I think just, you know, you look again at at Google's AR tech, you look at Apple's AR Kit 2.0 now, and, and you just you see how much of this makes so much sense when a device is pervasive, right, on your on your eyes. In fact, it, you know, if you kind of think about where we're going with, with augmented reality, with the point that that we've just been talking about about people spending too much time with their faces and their devices is that, you know, when you use a phone, a tablet, a PC or whatnot for long periods of time, you're essentially heads down, right? This is a heads down computing environment, right? You're, you're taken out of the physical world context and you're now absorbed down, your head down staring at a device. What, and what's, what makes AR interesting is that it flips that paradigm and says, I can take a lot of the great technology and features that you have in this kind of heads down environment and bring it to a heads up environment. So now you kind of get all those benefits of digital in a heads up, more aware, more, you know, spatially aware contextual environment. So I think that to the point that I made about, you know, just people being too sucked in, AR is kind of a step in the right direction of sucking them out, but still giving them some of that, that value. But what we're so far... Away from that, just one miniaturization of sophisticated technology is extremely difficult. That's really where, you know, if you look at what Apple's doing with Apple Watch, they're, they're shrinking technology to, you know, limits that were un, previously unable to shrink to. And that's all part of their step process to get to, you know, an eyeglasses type of a form factor. It's really hard work. It's going to be hard for a lot of companies to do that. But things like, I've said, you know, computers that we wear on our wrists, computers that we wear in our ears are all going to be important footsteps in the direction of computers that we have you know over our eyes. So those those have to work themselves out first and there's a long it's going to take a long time. That's why I keep saying the smartphone's going to be around for a long time. It's not the immediate horizon, but it is where we're going. It's to kind of bring computing from a heads down environment to a heads up environment and that's that's I think the the real high level ph- philosophical way that
0: I think about where we're going. I think the Apple w- WDC 2018 was interesting because Siri has taken a different form in the form of they suggested things like Siri shortcuts. And then, of course, there's the other conversation about whether the Mac and the iPad will converge. What are the tea leaves that you are sensing from these things that's ongoing with Apple now.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, the Siri's evolution has been a relatively obvious one. I mean, I think people are just starting to notice it now, but, you know, for the past couple of generations of iOS, Apple has sort of given, put Siri into places that's not just voice. So Siri, you know, to Apple is really, it's it's not just a voice assistant. I mean, it's not really to, to Google either, and to some degree, you know, Microsoft. It's, it's a text-based assistant. It's something that's, that's really just more of a philosophical aid. I mean, they're viewing it more as Siri just kind of helps you manage your day-to-day, get things done. Provide It's trying to help you be more efficient. That's not just a voice point. That's also how it's ingraining itself. So things like Siri suggestions that pop out now in calendar and email and apps and all sorts of different things is, is now just bringing Siri to the front forefront of hoping... The goal is to try to know what you want to do before you do it and then Siri is the mechanism that makes the path of least resistance to do that thing that you want to do. That's essentially, I think, the way that both Apple and Google are thinking about their assistance. That's really where I think they're they're going to keep building on that foundation of trying to understand that you, you the, the, the owner or user of those devices individually and start to bring some of those, those tasks that you want to do and make them easier and make them more efficient. So all of the points I made about machine learning e- earlier are manifested into Siri and, you know, Cortana from Microsoft and, uh, and, an assistant. So I, I think that's, that's been a long time coming. It makes a lot of sense. There's again, still a lot of work to go there, but I think that it's not just voice. It's, it's really, it's a holistic assistant, a uh, helper on, on all of the devices that's both textual and and voice from an interface standpoint. The Mac and iPad stuff, you know, I mean, I think it's been an interesting evolution. I mean, I really do think Apple still believes heavily in touch computing, particularly around like iPad philosophies for getting stuff done for productivity. I mean, I think if you just watch a number of their develop, developer videos around developing touch interfaces and designing for for touch computing it's clear that they believe that touch is second to voice the most natural human interface element for for computers i think that they don't believe that the touch computing ecosystem for productivity, efficiency, creativity apps has still yet been taken advantage of. I think they think there's still a lot more to do because the reality is the market didn't adopt you know, iPad Pro and tablets as, as anything close to a PC replacement. Like I think that Apple and, and even to some degree Microsoft thought that they would. So there's kind of a, a I think in terms of, of Apple, a, a slight pivot back to the Mac to say, you know, as much as we believe in 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 touch and what's going on with iPad Pro and, and bringing out the power of that design for creativity and productivity and everything, right? Media and entertainment. They're recognizing that the market didn't embrace it. You know, the market didn't go the down the path that they wanted now that could be because not enough app developers really embrace touch as a true productivity platform or maybe people really just are fine with their PCs being that product and they just want their tablets to be their entertainment type devices. You know, I I think Apple still is interested in kind of this merger of those two things, but I don't think it's you know I, if they do this path, I don't think it's something that's a like true. It looks kind of like an iPad. It looks kind of like a Mac, I think it's something new, perhaps even a new operating system for this type of product that's kind of blending those two environments, iOS and Mac OS. I don't think it's just merging the two. I think no doubt the iPad line will still exist for people who want that form factor the Mac with its traditional mouse, keyboard, and non-touch display will exist for people who want that. But I still think there's that opportunity in the middle. iPad Pro is trying to go there, but maybe there's a new evolution of a brand new type of a product that builds on iPad Pro and kind of creates this new thing that sits between iPad and Mac that's kind of the best of both worlds from both the touch as well as mouse and keyboard. I kind of think that's where they're going because, again, I don't see these things being, quote-unquote, merged. I see them creating something new. Out of a marriage between iOS and macOS is is kind of where I'm thinking. I'm going to flip the question back then.
0: Are Apple and Google heading in the same direction with regards to AI and mobile? But actually, they diverge a lot on privacy.
1: Yeah, I mean, you're right, right? I mean, I think that there's a lot of similarities in the direction they're heading. I think, you know, there's it's it's not just privacy, which I'll I'll mention I'll talk about briefly in a second, but it's also just how they deal with device on-device versus cloud, right? I think Apple is leaning and going more toward a heavy process on-device type of technology, and Google's moving more of that to the cloud. So privacy conversation aside, they're taking two philosophically different approaches to how they want to execute machine learning and artificial intelligence, one being very device-driven on the device in Apple and one being very cloud-driven in, in Google. And, and that's, again, that's both to their strengths, right? Apple's not a great cloud company, so it would be very, very hard for them to start embracing more cloud compute and back-end cloud processing for AI and ML. Google's great at that, and it would be very hard for them to bring all of that to the device the same way that Apple's doing. So they're basically taking their strategies for machine learning and and how that manifests itself to artificial intelligence solutions, they're building it into their bread and butter, Apple on device and, and Google in cloud. Now, the privacy one, I think, is is interesting. And this is, you know, uh, probably an entirely different or different podcast all together, just what's happening in, in privacy. But I don't think Google suffers from the same sort of privacy problem that Facebook does, for example. I think that consumers in general trust Google a little bit more. I think that they're not as worried about third parties getting their data as they are with Facebook. I think they value Google services more than they value Facebook's, at least in, in the West, for sure. So I, I'm not sure that... and I, And I do admit, right? There is a a privacy point, but I think Google does a really, really good job of protecting people's privacy. I don't think that they are a privacy offender to the same degree that perhaps uh, Facebook is, which is just some, sometimes just out of ignorance for Facebook, not necessarily because they're attempt, intentionally trying to, you know, in, invade people's privacy. So I, I don't sort of think that, that that's as big of a issue for Google. I think what, what consumers honestly are being more sensitive to, and, and we did around a couple rounds of research earlier this year to sort of figure this out, some, around the time of the Facebook Cambridge Analytica stuff, is really what consumers are, are really weirded out by and don't like is hyper targeting. Like they just, they don't like the idea of I searched for something over here. I go to a completely different product and I start seeing all those things I searched for. Like they really don't like that. It's designed to be helpful. I get it, but if it, it's abusive, they don't, they, they feel like that's an invasion of their privacy. Not that they searched for a product on Facebook and saw an ad on Facebook relative to that product. It's it's when they search for a product on Amazon and they see it on Facebook, for example. That's that's where people start to really get weirded out. So Google has some of that. They do have some of this hyper-targeting. And I think that they're rethinking kind of how that works. And no doubt this GDPR stuff is gonna, I think, impact some things more more than people think. But no doubt, you know, like I said, I, I think Apple is completely doubling down on this story. I think it's good. I mean, I do think that they're in the right in how they're fleshing this out. But to like I said, to the same point, I don't think Google... Google is as much of a, of a privacy concern as, as Facebook and other social media companies might be if we just think about Android and iOS, for example, as a computing platform.
0: Has Google's perspectives on hardware actually changed with their new TPU on AI and also the emphasis on Google Home then?
1: I don't think so. I mean, I think that even my point about what they're doing in cloud it, you know the TPU is still really a cloud driven solution right it's designed to make their server side processing of of machine learning tasks faster whereas similarly apple's core designs around some you know unique machine learning chips that they did and you know, last year is designed to make their on-device machine learning processes faster. So they're both. I mean, Apple is w- much farther down this rabbit hole of of manufacturing unique silicon than Google is. The TPU is great. Version two is great. It's an accelerator. That's that's really all it is. Apple does a whole lot more than just acceleration in in their design. So so that's where I think if you look at their approach, it's again, it's in line with their their hardware strategy. In this case, the the custom silicon is in line with their strengths. Google's trying to accelerate. Cloud-based machine learning tasks. Apple is trying to accelerate on-device machine learning tasks with with their silicon. I don't think that that's a, a sort of a fundamental change. Like I said, I think it's in line with with how they're doing things. The home stuff for Google is really just, you know, if you you take a step back and look at how many people truly engage with Google Assistant, it's just not that high. Most people on Android are not using Google Assistant, where at least a good portion of Apple's user base uses Siri to some degree, right? They may not love it. I mean, they may have problems that might frustrate them. But, you know, for setting a timer, setting an alarm calling someone. A lot of iOS users use Siri and these are basic tasks, yes, but but more people use Siri than use Google Assistant. So this is my point. So Google has to just do things that get people more exposed to Google Assistant because they need to make a play there, right? The assistant platform, this aid, this this thing that helps you in your day-to-day is, is part of the next platform that we're going to. Whenever we get to, you know, wrists and ears and eyes, it, you got to have something that talks to you and interacts with you like a smart, a smart assistant. So Google has to, Google Assistant has to be a part of that next platform. And they're still figuring out how to make this pervasive. And, and smart speakers, there's a lot of value there. People really like them, even if it's just from music or setting alarms or managing smart home, like they really like those products. It's, it's done really, really well. So it makes sense that they make a play for Google Assistant inside the home in a hands-free computing environment. And they sold quite a bit last fall, the $49 Google mini. So they're making inroads there but it's, it's, again, it's a long hill. It's an uphill climb. It's an uphill climb for Google with Google Assistant. But their strategy remains clear. Try to get more people using Google Assistant. And these are the things that you see them doing to achieve that.
0: So has Apple actually shifted their paradigm in terms of how they decided that they would not tell users what's good for them? Because your colleague, Carolina Milanesi, wrote a pretty interesting article on TechPinions about how she thinks that Apple is now also rethinking the way how they deploy Siri to the customer.
1: If you look at kind of the arc of her piece, which is, it's it's a great article, and, and she really hits a couple of, I think, important points about just philosophically how Apple has sort of said, you know, we think this is the best way for you to do A, whatever it is, this process. And it's true. I mean, even Apple power users have been frustrated with this point at Apple that that Apple has sort of decided that this is best and not really given customization options. I mean, a, a great example, to be honest with you, is that just in simplistic terms, you I look at the iOS home screen, you cannot put, you know, apps in ex- all of the same positions that you want because they linearly lock to the top. You can't put a search bar. You can't customize that home screen to the same way that Google is. And and because app, Apple has decided that they just think that's the best sort of paradigm. Don't let people make a mess of their home screen because that's what they're going to do if you give them these choices and then that makes the device unusable cuz you know they've they've cluttered it up or they've put too many things on there they don't like or whatever the reasoning is but they've determined that you should not customize it the same way that you can customize the home screen what apple is letting you customize is if you swipe left there's kind of this widget dashboard you can customize that with quick actions and things but not don't mess with the home screen so that's a decision that they made because they just they're just saying that's the best now that might not be the right decision but apple does these things where they sort of say we're not going to let you the user screw this up because we know you will and so we're gonna make it so you can't and her point was great is it's that you know you can't do that in a voice-based assistance world there is no right or wrong right the person has to use these things the way that they want particularly when it comes to voice and so some degree these series shortcuts things are are ways for apple to learn that right ways to put control back in the hands of the of the customer so that they can decide how best they want to use these things right how how i want to achieve point b you know go from point a to point b with voice or with anything from an automation standpoint it's going to vary so much by user they have to be the ones that determine that so i think apple needs to learn that and through series shortcuts they'll kind of see how people start Linking tasks together. And, and eventually, like right now, it's pretty cumbersome. I mean, it's it's not awful, but like, you know, my wife and my kids, like, they're never going to use Siri shortcuts. They're just not going to go through the effort to do that. When Siri shortcuts move from you having to link these commands in this app physically, and you can just say, Hey, Siri, in about two hours, I need you to remind me to do this. And at that time, I also need you to blah, 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 blah. I say, by voice, you can link up multiple random commands which is essentially what workflow is, is you're linking up workflows important to you and you're doing so in this linear-based app UI. And to do that through voice, just lob something at the assistant, tell it what you want done, and it'll go and do all that stuff for you in the back end. And so that's where Apple's trying to get to. Siri shortcuts is... Stepping stone in that direction, but it's got to get to the point where you know voice is the thing that lets you link all these commands together. Apple's nowhere near doing that, so workflow and kind of how they get there this is the step, and how I think Apple gets in that
0: direction. I have a final question, but it's totally unrelated it's about the semiconductor industry. So it's actually undergoing a huge shift because of the recent ZTE debacle that pushes China now to be more independent, and ARM is now owned by SoftBank in Japan. And of course, the Taiwanese company, TSMC, is also in leadership transition. I think Maurice Chang has just retired. So, I mean, how are these changes affect Google, Apple, and the major U.S. tech companies in the years ahead?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I, I don't expect a ton of fundamental sort of changes, particularly like places like TSMC or with Arm, I mean, you know, the SoftBank crew has been pretty clear that they want Arm to maintain independency, you know, and you look at some of the new products coming out from, from Arm, you know, they're great, right? I don't, I don't think that I, I can look at anything that's changed in arms roadmap in their sort of of innovation path you know their ability to get new customers create new IP be aggressive with their products i don't I don't see any of that changing since the softbank um, deal so I'm not terribly worried about that obviously tsNC is still making a great run um, i mean they're they're really capturing a lot of new business you know their seven nanometer process is really really good I think they're going to continue to get <clears throat> a lot of business that way so I'm not sure i i see too much turbulence, I mean I think obviously Apple is completely locked into TSMC, so uh, and, and any any potential challenges there would be would be bad for Apple, but I think how like how does how does global foundries or some of these other companies start to uh, take advantage of just all that 's going on in in the technology landscape? so I think that these are interesting questions around what 's going on in semi, but like i said i don 't really think there might be some more consumer consolidation coming. But uh, to the point you mentioned, I don't I don't think that's going to really affect anybody too much.
0: I'm going to keep this conversation on semiconductors industry in mind because I'm going to get you back to do the uh, semiconductors are eating the world part two with me the next yeah. time around. Is yeah, it? cool. So,
1: Yeah, excellent. Sounds good.
0: Yeah, that's right. So Ben, it's good to have you on the show and I'm going to close. So I'm going to ask you two questions. So the first one is, can you recommend a book, movie, podcast, or anything else that recently impact your personal work life
1: personally i enjoy my friend ben thompson's podcast the podcast that he does exponent with uh, james allworth is, is really great I, I get a lot of value from that uh, ben's a friend of mine we, we talk regularly and but i do appreciate uh, the work that's one of the few podcasts that i i i do listen to the other one i actually would would, would recommend is is from my friend zach chichi who makes uh, the menu bar it's 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 A little bit controversial, but he's really willing to ask very hard questions about. Apple and Google and 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 be uncomfortable in some of those. I've I really enjoyed his podcast as of late, so I recommend people uh, check that out as well. As as, as it's been uh, it's been a great one, but it's also one like I said, you got to be open minded about because he's willing to challenge the status quo, it, which I think is great
0: for a tech podcast. I have one podcast to recommend, and it's called Acquired, and it's actually about acquisitions, mergers, and actually everything about IPOs. And I think the two hosts have actually done a very good discussion on the history the backdrop and i think their podcast is not very often it's actually every three to four weeks i think if you want to take a listen to uh, silicon valley company history or even microsoft history this is a good podcast to have now my last question to you then where can my audience find you
1: Easiest way is on Twitter. I mean, I'm pretty active on Twitter. I post to all the stuff that I write uh, on Twitter. So if you want to follow me closely, follow me on Twitter, add me to a list or something like that. Tech Pinions uh, is the publishing site that I started and run. Uh, we have a subscription service where every day you get a, an analysis or an article, mostly by me, but but my colleague Carolina writes as well and, and Tim Barron. Uh, who's also my father but uh, really well known in the industry we we all write pieces for that so you could subscribe to that if you want to see my stuff you get a nice little nugget of insight to your email every day those are the best ways to stay on top of
0: uh, whatever I'm writing or thinking and and whatnot I'm still a subscriber to the date you definitely can find me at Bernard Leung and at BernardLeung.com and you can subscribe to us from iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Acast and everywhere else and of course I'm actually in the midst of getting a WeChat page too. Ben, many thanks for coming on the show. And I would really want to have a conversation on Semiconductor soon with you.
1: Sounds good. Thanks for having me back, Bernard.